Hello and welcome to the Church Society podcast. I'm Ros Clark, I'm the Associate Director of Church Society and I'm your host here on these podcasts. Today on the podcast I'm really delighted to welcome Peter Walker. Peter, uh, well I will introduce him in a moment to you. So it's really um, a pleasure to be talking today to Peter Walker, mm. Reverend Dr Peter Walker, who is somebody um, who wears many hats in different ways. You're someone who's been involved in theological education for many years uh, in this country and uh, in America, I believe. You have been involved, and we're going to talk more later mm. about your work uh, leading tours to the Holy Land and, and a writing ministry. Uh, we're really thrilled that you recently joined the yeah. Churchman Editorial Board, um, uh, and uh, you know, which is um, Church Society's um, theological journal that we produce, and it's great to have you uh, involved in that. One of the things, one of the many hats that you wear at the moment, um, is director of the Theological Resource Network of EFAC. Could you just tell us, Peter, because I don't think everybody will necessarily know this, what is EFAC? What does it stand for? Um, um, and how did it come about as an organisation? Uh, well, thank you very much indeed, Ros. Yes, EFAC, it's not the best sounding acronym, but it stands for the Evangelical Fellowship in the Anglican Communion, Evangelical Fellowship in the Anglican Communion, uh, EFAC. And it was founded actually by John Stott back in 1961. So we're looking at nearly 60 years ago. And it was part of his vision then to draw together the different fellowships of clergy that existed in different provinces of the Anglican Communion. Uh, in the Church of England, before the Church of England Evangelical Council, there was a, a, a gathering of evangelical clergy in Australia and New Zealand, likewise in America. And it was him just going to the top level internationally, if you like, and saying, how can we uh, bring these different uh, chapters or evangelical clergy groups together? And uh, it had quite a bit of a life in the 1960s and 70s. They did a great programme of uh, EFAC bursars and scholars, getting people from the majority world to come often to the UK to study at Oak Hill or Ridley or Wycliffe or other places, get to know church life here in England, go back to their countries resourced um, with theological education. And uh, then also did a lot of work um, in the 1990s, every two years holding theological resource network gatherings or consultations, Nairobi, other places uh, around around the globe, uh, getting people to evangelical theologians together to look at topics of urgent local concern. It was, it was a great work, actually, but it then sort of fell apart slightly sort of 15 years ago and went quiet for, for 15 years. OK, and so but something that was focused, as you say, uh, on sort of clergy and theologians at that sort of level rather than amongst lay people. I, I think that's mostly. predominantly it, because if you think about it, trying to do something worldwide, connecting up, you have to almost use clergy as the kind of yeah. points of connection. Uh, um, although obviously your, your deepest desire is to uh, provide good level biblical ministry a Sunday by Sunday, which is going to bless the people of Jesus, sure. the lay people. But you've got to try and connect them up. And if you're going to do that around yeah. the world, in one sense, you have to focus on clergy. But I think your question is right, because I think our focus in EFACT is on clergy and theologians and trying to help evangelical theologians really do the work of supporting clergy that they may do their frontline ministry yeah, the really most helpful. effectively and giving them theological resources. So we're not so much focused at bishops and archbishops at the top level. Yeah. And although we love lay people, we can't sort of necessarily uh, make, join all the dots up between every lay yeah. Anglican Christian around the world. Great. And you, so you said sort of uh, it maybe slightly fell into abeyance mm. maybe 15 years or so ago. 
what has happened in the last couple of years that has sort of caused a, a resurgence of EFAC, if you like? Yeah, well, I had conversations with Chris Wright, who people will know, the great Old Testament scholar. Uh, dear Chris, who's done that, was a great involvement in EFAC back in the past. He was concerned that it had fallen into abeyance, if you like. I had a really sort of important conversation with Archbishop Munir Anis of Egypt in London, and he said, what are you doing? Where's EFAC gone? You need to refound it, talking to me and some other clergy, including Hugh Palmer, the rector of All Souls. And that was kind of a visionary moment. He realised there was a gap in our Anglican life. Uh, he himself knows of GAFCON. He's been involved in Global South. But he was looking in, in England and saying, you've lost this plot, that you've lost the EFAC, which was founded here in England and which could still be a real blessing to us uh, in the wider provinces of the Anglican Communion. I, I took that as a bit of an encouragement. And so about 18 months ago, there is a formal of trustees, um, four people uh, in the UK who are the trustees of this um, British Charitable Trust. Uh, they, they sorted out their finances. They decided to relaunch. Uh, we, we were present at GAFCON in Jerusalem last year, relaunching it. We've had a consultation in Nairobi um, uh, this last November, putting it on a con constitutional basis. John Stott had written out a constitution. We were trying to trying to obey what he'd commanded us to do. And uh, just with a vision in this critical uh, era in the Anglican Communion, just thinking there is still a role for getting good evangelical theology to be going around and, and blessing clergy not playing the role of politics primarily, um, though we, we, we live in a very political world, but joining up the dots, I think, between mm. clergy in different places and uh, giving a place to stand on the... It's actually our statement of faith is the Church of England Evangelical Council statement of faith, plus the GAFCON declaration on sexuality and marriage. That's, that's the EFAC statement of faith. And Helpful. I think it could be very powerful if we could get clergy around the world uh, to identify with, with that. It's a theological yes. statement, a brilliant theological statement of evangelical faith. And it's, but it has got the, the current issue of sexuality and marriage. We can't avoid it. And it's got a, a clearly conservative biblical view on that. I think that's really helpful. I, so one of the things I, I wanted to just help people to do was to see how this is slightly distinct from GAFCON. So people, I think, are likely to have heard of GAFCON and mm. we know uh, a little bit about what they do. GAFCON is not um, distinctively evangelical, um, I think. Uh, so one of the things it is trying to do is, is have a broader definition of orthodoxy than That's that. Right. Yeah. Um, and while they are, I, I think now, you know, they're different strands doing a whole lot of different things, including um, some uh, theological uh, work, they're more related to the kind of political engagement um, I think than than EFAC is trying to be. So so it is it is a different sort of organisation with mm. a different ethos, distinctly evangelical, um, mm. and with that focus um, as as originally uh, established by John Stott with that goal of trying to um, produce uh, evangelical theology to equip and serve clergy around the world. And I think it's mm. really fascinating that you mentioned that your sort of impetus came from somebody. Um, not in the Western Church, but well, that's right. Yes, yeah. Um, yeah. In in Egypt, in a you know in a different part of the world, saying actually we need 
our brothers and sisters in the Western Church to be serving us in this sort of way. That's right, and telling us that we effectively have to relaunch it from the centre here, but not in a colonial way, obviously not, but in a way which uh, the onus is on us to refound it. I think that's right, your comments there in relation to GAFCON want to be very clear that we're not in any kind of competition or trying to do anything which undercuts the very important heavy lifting of work which GAFCON has done at the primatial and archbishop's level. And I think there is a distinction, but I think we need to be very careful not to imply that GAFCON's not theological, by the way. Yes, uh, it, sorry, it's, got a, yes. it's got a real uh, concern for theology and they want to do a great deal to help theological colleges and seminaries. Yes. And we want to honour that. Um, but we, and we don't want to tread on toes. We, want, we, we will be in conversation very closely with them to make sure that, you know, we, we are we're not treading on each other's toes so um but i think there is a slight distinction and as you've said we can be distinctively evangelical uh and i think the cc statement of faith has got a very strong yeah. doctrine of the cross resurrection etc it's very clearly protestant reformed evangelical theology uh, written up very well by the way in the 1980s um, when it was crafted and i think it means that we can really do an be an evangelical track yes. within a wide international movement uh, which is GAFCON, where we gladly embrace and recognise that there are other godly Anglicans who are Orthodox, but who wouldn't narrowly subscribe to the uh, evangelical yeah. um, tenets yes. of faith in the way that we would like to do so. Yeah, very helpful. And so could you just explain uh, what your role, so you're director of the Theological Resource Network, what kinds of things are you doing uh, as part of that role, Peter? Uh, yes, various things. We have a, a monthly newsletter which we send out to our, our members and people who want to subscribe. And uh, one of the gr great joys in that has been uh, to summarise and to give a precy of John Stott's little book, Focus on Christ. Uh, it, it was, its subtitle in 1979 was A Theology of uh, Pre Prepositions. Gosh. And you go, uh, yes, I know it's typical John Stott. So in Christ, through Christ, under Christ is fascinating. It started his absolute best writing actually during the Lambeth Conference in 1978. And one of his challenges there was actually under Christ our Lord. You know, and he said that some of the bishops who'd been at Lambeth Conference were saying, I'm surprised how few people are wanting to be under the word of God. You know, and, he, and Stott was very generous about this. But nevertheless, just leaving a little challenge. How much are we as Christians under uh, under Christ. So that's a fascinating little thing to do, just to help the voice of the founder of EFAC, uh, John Stott, to be reheard in a new generation. Obviously, many people now might know the name, but never actually have read anything of his. And uh, we want just to honour our founder. Not that we're beholden to John Stott in a wooden, archaic way. Things have moved on. And we wouldn't necessarily articulate in everything exactly the same way that John Stott did. But he did such an amazing work of truth and unity with humility, by the way. We want to walk in, re, re, clean out the canal, if you like, and enjoy the, the, um, the, the water and the flow of um, uh, his, his energy and inspiration. So that's been one little thing. Uh, chiefly, I've been asked to um, refound uh, theological resource groups in different provinces. Uh, yes, we're trying to set up a more international panel, of, you know, around the world of leading theologians who can just advise us on evangelical issues as they see them coming over the horizon in their province or in their continent. But we're trying uh, in Kampala this coming June to get together uh, two or three theologians from six Anglican provinces like Kenya, Uganda, South Sudan, etc., uh, to come together to brainstorm together to share what the evangelical challenges are of theology 
Uh, also, actually, to look at issues of financial accountability, uh, which is an important issue around the world, but especially in Africa as well, and to, to try and look biblically at that issue. Um, and then hopefully, as a result of that, these scholars and theologians will go back to their provinces in the next year or two. We'll be meeting together little groups of five or six theologians rooted in their province, perhaps in Uganda, and saying, what, what are the challenges to biblical faith here? Is the biblical teaching, for example, in Uganda, on the land, the issues about the church owning the land and people getting annoyed that the church does, or should the church be selling it? Well, is there biblical teaching on the land? You say, so it's not just New Testament teaching. You might come in and say, look, there's glorious Old Testament teaching on society, which could really help uh, Ugandan Christians build a society which is just and, uh, you know, honours the Lord like the ancient Israelites were trying to do. So there are all kinds of rich ways in which evangelical theology... But we don't know what those questions are. The Ugandans have got to work out what are the challenges for them and then start doing a genuinely indigenous evangelical Anglican theology where they are. So it's an exciting project. Very exciting. Wow. And, and yeah, the scope of that is, is really, um, yeah, exciting to think what impact that could have um, in places all over the world. Um, if people were wanting to hear more about that, so those of us who have not heard John Stott on the prepositions and think, gosh, yeah. that sounds amazing. Where would we go to sign up to receive that newsletter and find out about all of these things that, that are happening? Oh, well, that's a leading question. Uh, yes, I mean, uh, Carolyn Crocker, the wife of the General Secretary, Richard Crocker, uh, was very happy to receive uh, an, uh, 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 an email. Um, perhaps we'll give that out at the end. And um, just say that you want to sign up for the EFAT newsletter and you just get it once a month, second Tuesday of the month. And we keep it brief, but we just have a bit of theological input. By the way, last month I was able to interview Michael Green 10 days before he died. Uh, and we put that out, the transcript of that, on the EFAC monthly Wonderful. newsletter. That's such a privilege to do. So if you want to get hold of that, again, it's on the EFAC newsletter. Uh, newsletter. Yeah, great. And so as you look forward, obviously this is quite a new thing. It's only within the last couple of years that, that this sort of relaunched version of EFAC uh, has been about. What were some of the things that you would hope for and, and dream about for the future that you would love for, for EFAC to be doing and, and achieving? Yeah. Well, I keep coming back to the question, what would John Stott have done if he'd lived in the Internet age or with databases and websites? And I think he would have got a whole apparatus around him, not just Francis Whitehead, who was writing his books, but a whole kind of organisation to join up the dots now in this Internet age between the different uh, provinces and continents. Um, and uh, what would what it look like if we could actually build an organisation where every evangelical Anglican clergyman or woman was able to uh, sign up to our statement of faith and we can suddenly, around the world, we would know how many evangelical Anglican clergy there are, even in the Church of England, which we don't necessarily know, by the way, um, but and join up the dots uh, with uh, people in Southeast Asia, etc. We, we could suddenly realise that, well, we discovered that we were 60 or 70% of the the clergy in the Anglican Communion, which would be a very interesting thing to discover and to know and to feel our proportionate weight. There'll be some provinces, obviously, where evangelicals be very much in the minority. Others where it's sort of middle-middle, some where it's almost total 100%. But that'd be great. Uh, could we not join those people up? What, wouldn't that be an incredible thing? All kinds of mission partnerships would be possible. Uh, for example, in Uganda, you know, some, sometimes they're a bit, who can we form a partnership with in uh, in England? Because we're not too sure what's going on in in England. Uh, and so they, they they. But what if a, an evangelical Anglican 
clergy person here in the UK wanted to be involved in mission uh, in Uganda and a bishop in Uganda wants to know if he can trust this person. Yeah. EFAC can act as the, the bridge of communication and trust. I think what's broken down the Anglican communion is trust. It's, I mean, there's a breakdown mm. of faith and trust in Jesus, but actually it's trust between each other. Yes. Uh, when you're not too sure if the other person believes what you thought they were meant to believe and the whole family begins to break down. So mm. I see that EFAC could be a way of rebuilding trust between people who have put themselves in a circle of trust, mm. who have said, this is my statement of faith. I stand here. I can do no other, like Luther. This is where I stand. I'm placing myself under it. Notice that word from John Stott, you know, under the word of God. And I want to reach out a hand of fellowship in the Holy Spirit to my fellow um, clergy in this instance. Uh, and we, together we can be a force for good. I've got these four Fs. The faith that we hold on to, we're looking up, that's the sort of the top level. The foundation of obedience, placing ourselves under the scriptures, not just believing it, but obeying it, walking in the truth. You know, saying no to the idols of money, sex and power. Mm. Jesus is Lord in practice, not just in theory. And then the sort of horizontal axis of fellowship now, which is possible in this new community of entrusted people. And we can be a force for good, you know. <laughs> so that's my kind of vision for EFAC. And I, I think it's there's some exciting things that are possible in that. Yeah, I think it's great. I mean, watch this space, definitely. Um, and yeah. we will certainly put um, on the uh, blog post that goes with this podcast links to where you can find the uh, EFAC website and how you can sign up for the newsletter and, and all of those things. And yeah. and we'd encourage uh, people to, to check that out because I think, uh, as you say, there's there's a lot that's really exciting that, that we hope uh, will happen. Um, I do want to move on, uh, Peter, to talk about some of the other things. And one of the things yeah. that I'm really interested in that you've done uh, a lot of and uh, have been involved in in different ways. Um, I have never been uh, to the Holy Land, but I know you have been many times. I'm sorry for you, Ros. Thank you. Come, you. come with me sometime. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and, and have led uh, sort of study tours there and written uh, books about that, sort of In the Steps of Jesus and the story of the Holy Land. Um, when, when did you first go there, Peter? And, and what were you hoping for and what was it like? What effect has that had on you? Clearly mm. quite a profound effect that this is something you've then spent uh, so mm. much of your life working on. How, yeah. yeah, how did that happen? Well, that's right. Uh, before I go any further, of course, Roz, uh, you, uh, no one needs to go to the Holy Land. And every believer in Jesus, um, Jesus comes to us and his Holy Spirit lives within us. We we do not need to go on a Hajj pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Um, so Good. it's very, very important. I feel relieved that you've said that. That's right. It's a very important <laughs> Protestant point to make. Uh, yes. Uh, and it's partly having those questions in my own head when I went very reluctantly as a 20-year-old, already as a believing biblical Christian, uh, and I asked you know, the question, why are people around here talking about Jerusalem as a holy city? And why are they talking about the places where Jesus walked as holy places? Are they really all that special? That was the question in my mind. And for six days, I'm asking that question, going around with my parents on a tour. And But that gave me the trigger for four years of PhD research in Cambridge, looking at the way the early Christians viewed the Holy Land. So my original PhD was not in New Testament, but in patristic theology and history really looking at the way in the fourth century in particular 
Bishop Eusebius, who was the Archbishop of Palestine, the famous Eusebius of Caesarea, the church historian, and a less known bishop, Bishop Cyril of Jerusalem, that their contrasting views, um, Eusebius, a slightly more Protestant historian, interested in history, but not interested in pilgrimage, Cyril, a bit more sacramental, a bit more Catholic uh, in his understanding, beginning to develop a mystique of pilgrimage and coming to the holy places. And looking at that contrast um, just gave me a real love of uh, early church history, by the way. I think it's very good to look at the Bible from uh, sometimes from after the New Testament. And it gave me a real confidence in the authenticity of the gospel places and the archaeology of them and that kind of thing. So that was a really great, great thing to do. Um, Then a bit later, I had a chance to go back to Tyndale House as a postdoctoral fellow after my curacy and uh, write a book on uh, Jerusalem in the New Testament. And... um, Uh, for three years there, I'm sitting at my desk thinking my brain has died. I'm never going to be able to write another book. And, uh, you know, I'm feeling lost of ministry. And, you know, it's, I feel, I, you know, I'm in my young 30s. But uh, Everybody feels like that at Tyndale House, I think. <laughs> I think they probably do. I think it's going into the library and finding so many books and you realise you don't understand 0.1% of them. You feel so small. So it's why I often don't go into bookshops, actually. I come out feeling so small that I, I feel crippled. But actually, seriously, in that particular book, there were two big challenges there. Um, one was um, even writing anything about the historical Jesus. I hit an impasse. The Jesus seminar back in the 1990s was saying, well, Jesus didn't say this, Jesus didn't say that. And I thought, I can't write anything about Jesus. Uh, and I have to acknowledge you know, publicly my debt to Tom Wright at that point. I went mm-hmm. and, and stayed with him a night in Litchfield and... Uh, I read some drafts of his book, Jesus and the Victory of God, and it gave me the confidence that as a Christian, you can also do history and write about the Jesus of history from an Orthodox Christian point of view, but also being historical. And, you know, that that was an incredible gift for me in writing that particular book. Another gift also um, was at the end of three years of writing this book, looking at what every writer of the New Testament says about Jerusalem, the temple and the land, to have got to the place in my own mind where I thought I'd interpreted every verse correctly or truly, but they were not in conflict with one another. Hmm. So I got a confidence that you could look at a very complicated topic and actually the New Testament is not incoherent. Hmm. And uh, That's you know, great. James, Paul yeah. and Hebrews, when you think about those three writers of Hebrew, uh, the New Testament, you could say they viewed the temple in slightly different ways. James was in it to win it. Paul was a bit sort of not too sure what to do, perhaps. I'm, I'm sort of hamming it up slightly here. Hebrews is definitely saying, you know, throw it um, out. Three very different pragmatic responses to the fact that Jesus had predicted the end of this temple. And just thinking about historically where they were speaking from and how much they actually agreed, even though they came out with slightly different angles, uh, was a way, was really encouraging to me that I'd been able to write a book on the New Testament which didn't say, by the way, it's inconsistent. So that was a real confidence for me as a person then to go and teach at Wycliffe, believing that this book, this little New Testament, was a coherent book and not you know, yeah. 27 different books, all of which are talking in the opposite directions. And that's a real confidence I've got from doing that. Hmm, really interesting. And so then, um, get, taking us back to the issue of the Holy Land, um, you've hmm. done all this work on Jerusalem and the temple and the land. And so then um, uh, you're teaching biblical studies uh, at Wycliffe. And 
you decide to start taking other people to the Holy Land. Well, mm. Why did you think that was a, a valuable thing? Why is that a valuable thing for Christians to want to do? And we've already said it's not a pilgrimage. It's not sure. a, a requirement. It's not a, a special thing in that sort of way. But you obviously felt it was a valuable thing. Uh, to do. Yeah, that that's right. Um, I, I think um, confidence in history is is a really important thing. It's um, I think every every Christian perhaps needs to know that their faith in Jesus is built on solid ground. You know, it's not shifting sand. Um, and there's nothing like standing on the rocks of Galilee and imagining Jesus there, perhaps preaching the Sermon on the Mount on a hillside up the hill somewhere. Uh, to, to realise that this isn't a make-believe story, this this yeah. isn't a fable. You, you know, of course, that it isn't, but of course, many liberal scholars want to tell you that it is. So actually, just going there and realising this is not the kind of thing that's been made up. Yeah. Uh, this this is this has got smells like history. It's claiming to be history. It looks like history. It jolly well is history. And something about standing yourself in the location helps give that confidence. By the way, I'm trying to get people from East Africa up to, to the Holy Land yeah. because I want East African revival, which can be very focused on the things of the spirit, to realise that actually it's focused... It's, it's got that concrete... It's, gone, it's built on concrete yeah. foundations. That's right. And often evangelical faith actually has a danger um, of going up like a hot air balloon and, and slightly getting untethered to, yes. to the ground. Actually, it's an image, imagery that John Stott used, actually. He likened a good evangelical is, is like a kite who's tied to the ground but flying in the wind. Okay, yes, yeah. I like that. And, I think it's maybe yeah. a similar experience to um, something that I've experienced when I've gone to the British Museum, for example, and you yeah. see things like the, the Assyrian stone carvings of, yeah. um, you know, Sennacherib and the, the Siege of Jerusalem, and suddenly you're like, oh, this isn't just written in the pages of my Bible. This is literally yeah. carved into stone, you know, yeah. and other sort of um, artifacts from that period. And you, and again, you have that sense of this is a real concrete thing that yeah. happened. That... I th and it helps you to believe uh, the Bible, not just because the Bible tells you that it's true and you ought to believe it, which is it's actually a very good reason for believing it. It's got its own authenticity. And I do believe it have a high doctrine of scripture as a result. Yeah. But at the same time, you can have a high doctrine of scripture, but you also need to, as it were, to justify it or to feel confidence in yourself that that position which you hold for theological reasons actually also stands up on its own merits. And you believe yes. it, not because the Bible tells you you're meant to believe it, but because it actually happened. Yes, <laughs> you know, and, and it there's fits something about with that, the geography is... and the history and the, you know, yeah, those tangible things that we can also see. And, and not that we wouldn't, necessarily believe it otherwise but actually to see that they all mesh together um, yeah yeah is a is a, a thing that gives great confidence and assurance isn't it absolutely yeah and i think another thing which goes on when you're there because we're real people in real space and time you imagine you can imagine jesus by galilee and i believe very much in godly imagination i believe it's the key faculty that we have as christians actually to imagine truly the events of the bible i mean if, you, if anyone talks to you about to you about the cross and tells you the story of Jesus dying on the cross. Every five-year-old child who hears that story has imagined what the picture looks like. They have a picture in their own mind. We all have imaginations. Are they godly imaginations or are they fanciful imaginations? Um, and I think part of what going there is helps people to actually be able to imagine the events and then get more confidence and derive extra meaning out of them, not out of something which is imaginary, 
but a historical imagination. That's something completely different. Hmm. Um, so I, I, it's a very multi-dimensional experience. Just a final thing, if I may. Mm. But focusing on the historical Jesus is important. But the important thing also is to remember that he's the same as the risen Jesus who's alive today. So we're not just going to see the places of a dead Jesus. And so I loved taking people to the lakeside by Capernaum, where I believe mm. John 21 took place. And um, it's a resurrection appearance. Jesus, the happiest man in the world. He's just back from the dead, having breakfast with his disciples. And to just place people, get them to stand on the lakeside and to imagine that event, smell the barbecue for the breakfast. It's nine o'clock in the morning. And uh, so it's just, it evokes that, that imagination. And then actually what I often do is I get them to look out over the lake to imagine Peter coming in from the, lake, from the lakeside with the, trawling 153 fish. And then I get them to turn around and I've got some bread and wine mm. and we just break bread together on the beach. And it's just a way of saying, look, the risen Jesus is still alive today. He's ministering to the Peters of this world and everybody else. We're all broken. Yeah. We all need to be renewed. But the risen Jesus once was here and now he's sending you out into the world. Come, follow me. So we're, we're joining up the historical Jesus, the authentic Jesus with the, the true Jesus of today. Yes, and again then a really helpful reminder that the last thing we're trying to do is go and, you know, find bits of relics of the true cross or relics of That's right. Mary's veil or whatever. That is not the point at all. It's the person of Jesus is the centre and we're growing in our relationship with the Jesus we already knew and loved when we were living in London or Kampala, but yeah. now we're going on to a deeper level with him. Yeah. yeah. Wonderful. Um, just very briefly, in the last couple of minutes, Peter, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about uh, things that we can look forward to that you're working on at the moment. I know you're working on something related to uh, sort of in the steps of Jesus and the, the Holy Land uh, things you've been doing. Maybe just tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Um, in the Steps of Jesus, the book, I've been filming the life of Jesus based on the 14 chapters in, in the Steps of Jesus from Bethlehem through Jerusalem to Emmaus, based on Luke's Gospel. So I've had the chance in the last three years to film in each of those locations. I'm playing the role there of the kind of the professor in the classroom of the Holy Land, standing in front of a camera explaining what's happening. So people criticise as being talking head. It's not a sort of trendy travelogue. But nevertheless, I, so I have this vision of trying to teach the Holy Land to people who will never have the opportunity to go there, uh, which is the vast majority of Christians around the world today. And so I'm trying to give away my privileged knowledge of the place as a Westerner who's had a chance to go there many times. People in Muslim countries can never go there, for example. Anglicans in Pakistan will never get there. Uh, so um, how can I use that as a teaching resource? So I'm trying to get that out gradually. We're going to do a slightly more commercial version, possibly a bit more of a travelogue with some fresh filming to go with a latest book but I'm also trying to get it out as a course which you know in the first world could people could pay money for and actually come on a I could guide them through the holy land sitting on their computer uh, but also to get it out for free to the majority world so that people in Africa and elsewhere could could take a course in in biblical geography so that's 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 the goal that's really exciting and is there a sort of um estimated uh time when when you're hoping to have that out will that be this year next year 10 years well, uh, ask my wife, uh, but uh, I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, I, I think the commercial version, we hope, will be out uh, probably 18 months from now, the earliest, and maybe this um, the more academic version, the teaching version, 
uh, depending on a few negotiations which are upcoming, you know, it might be again available in 18 months to two years. But it's a lot of behind the scenes work, lots of editing. Right. It's one thing to film these things. It's another thing to do the editing and the project management yeah. and, and getting them out to be both commercial on the one hand, because you know, that's yeah. important, but also to be a blessing for the Christian church and giving it away as graciously as you can. So we will keep in touch and, and find out. Uh, and perhaps let people know when that is available. Peter, thank you so much for all that, that you do. We're uh, excited, I say, to have you involved with Churchmen going no, forward. That's great. And um, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank, thank you, Ros. It's been lovely to talk with you. We'll put, as I say, uh, all the information about where you can find out more about EFAC uh, on the website and how to sign up for that newsletter. Peter also wanted me to let you know that he is going to be leading a tour to the Holy Land, I think, in January of 2020. Uh, and again, I will put information about that uh, on the website in case that's something that you're interested in finding more about. Um, as I say, I, I have never been, but it, it would be amazing to go with somebody like Peter who really knows uh, what he's talking about and can help you uh, see uh, and experience uh, those places in a, in a new and exciting way. So all of that will be uh, on the website uh, in the blog post that goes with this podcast. Thank you so much for listening and do tune in again next week. Mm-hmm.